What a glorious truth to know the king of creation desires not just to judge, but in grace and truth to be with his people. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. So let's begin this morning with a quick read-through of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray together one more time. Our Savior and King, it's with thankful hearts that we gather together in your name this morning to celebrate your birth, your life, and even your death, resurrection, and imminent return. We thank you that your kingdom has come, but at the same time is still yet to come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's our desire, Holy Spirit, that we grow in our knowledge of God, And so we ask that not only do we grow in our knowledge of God, but also in our adoration of him. You are the only true God. You are the king of kings. So Holy Spirit, would you bless this study of scripture and tune our hearts to sing your grace this day. 
We ask this for the glory and the gospel of Christ together. Amen. Well, Pastor Micah alluded to it a little bit earlier when we were singing that I have a bit of an issue with the title of the song, We Three Kings. First of all, I don't believe they were kings necessarily, maybe more like scientists. But also, I have uh, an issue with the amount of kings in the song. You guys, we just sang it. We Three Kings of Orient are. Who knows the rest of the, of the song lyric? Well, don't say it with that much enthusiasm. My goodness. Yes, bearing gifts we traverse afar. We three kings. I have an issue with the number three because as we open up the scriptures and we just read the text that we are about to study, we ask the question, how many wise men are there? And the answer seems to always be there were three wise men. But the answer, of course, the true answer is that the Bible doesn't tell us. A lot of Christmas songs refer to the three wise men. The first Noel says it this way, then entered in those wise men three, fully reverent upon their knee, and offered there in his presence their gold and myrrh and frankincense. When you start looking for the three wise men, you find them everywhere, even places they don't belong, like the nativity scene. Now, some of you know I harp on nativities a little bit, maybe part to do with they might be violating the second commandment, but also the standard nativity scene is usually wrong. Here's what we usually see. There's baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph. We're off to a good start. That's a good thing. We see the shepherd over here and we see the ox and lamb keeping time. So that's good. But then we have always three different uh, wise men and they're all bearing gifts and they're wearing crowns as if they are kings, but there's always three. And that is incorrect because as we open up the scripture, what do we find in Matthew chapter one? We don't find the wise men. We find the wise men way after Jesus's birth. And so what I've done, I have a bit of a reputation. If you invite me over to your house and you have a nativity scene, I'm not going to be judgmental, but I may pull the wise men off just a little bit to the side. And I may put a little sticky note that says sometime later, in fact, up to two years later, uh, I have done that with some of you. Now, you might say, well, why is Pastor Pilgrim ruining Christmas? Does he need a hug? Well, <laughs> the reason I'm so spirited about the wise men is, and the nativity is that the Bible clearly communicates they were not there on the night with the shepherds of Jesus' birth. And additionally, the Bible does not clearly say that there were three. And so my argument is if we can't get the story of Jesus' birth accurately, then what else about his life and his teaching may we probably get wrong? So this morning I want us to study Matthew chapter 2 and investigate four different things that we find in these verses. If you're taking note, we're going to look today at the kings. And here's a hint. There's not three, but there are two. We're going to look at the wise men, who they were, and what are they doing? Why are they coming to the arrival of King Jesus. We're going to see the star, and this is a fascinating study in astronomy. And then finally, we'll see the gifts and why they are so symbolic in light of the incarnation of Jesus. And my prayer for us as we study this familiar text, as we continue this Advent series, The Coming King, is that we would again consider the events surrounding the birth of Christ, surrounding the incarnation, through the lens, though, of his kingship. That's what we're doing in this series. And today, as we behold our king with the wise men, my prayer is that we likewise would understand that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. 
the greatest gift that God could ever give to the world was the gift of his son. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So as we consider the wise men, we realize the greatest gift that we can give back to the Lord is our very lives. So the title of the sermon is, God our King is with us, and that truth changes everything. The fact that God with us, Emmanuel, has come, that changes everything. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3 and look at who these kings are. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, so there's one king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So that's the second king. Now, it has been said that contrast is the mother of clarity. Essentially, that means if you really want to understand something, to define something, you often have to draw a big parallel of contrast against it so you can see how it's rightly defined. And so here we have two contrasted kings. One of them is, I'm going to use air quotes, is King Herod, and the other is the king of heaven, Jesus the Christ. One of them sits on a throne currently, while the other has just been born, and yet his kingdom has existed far before and far after this current king. One of them is worried that his rule may be overthrown, and he has about one year or so to live, while the other king's kingdom, as we just sang, is an everlasting one. He'll reign forevermore, and it'll have no end. One king will kill anyone who dares to threaten his power, even if that includes innocent children, which the text goes on after what we studied and read to talk about. But the other king has come to put an end to the power of sin and death and to save God's children by laying down his innocent life for them. One king will rule with intimidation and deceit, while the other king has come with grace and truth and rules and righteousness. So there are two kings, and we see them contrasted here. Now, verse 2 points out that Jesus didn't become king of the Jews. No, he was born king of the Jews. So Herod can wear this title all day long, but he's not the true king of the Jews. Notice that Matthew 2 picks up after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you just glance up to chapter 1, you can see above verse 18, the heading, it should say something like the birth of Jesus Christ. We learn in verse 1 of chapter 2 that this is in the days of Herod, the king. And these wise men come from the east to Jerusalem. They enter into the city and they begin asking people, hey, where's the king of the Jews? We, we know that he's been born. Can you point us in the direction? Is he in the palace? Is he near the temple? Where's the king of the Jews? And we're not sure, but I wonder if the people of Jerusalem were saying, shh, be careful. Be careful who you say that to. Don't tell Herod. If Herod catches wind of this, he's not going to be happy. Now, verse 3 tells us that he does catch wind of this. And the word that Matthew uses is that Herod was, quote, troubled. The Greek word for trouble, if you want to circle it in verse 3, it means to be emotionally distressed. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when he went to Lazarus' home and Everyone was mourning his good friend's death. It says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. We translate that as trouble. And here, 
Herod is troubled. But notice verse 3 calls him and verse 1 calls him the king. The king. Herod the king. Now, Herod is known as Herod the Great. And that's a title that he really loved. In part, it may have been because he stood about four feet, four inches tall. He was not a man of great stature by any means, but he loved being known as Herod the Great. He ruled from about 39 BC until his death in 4 BC. So if you're keeping count, Herod was alive when Jesus was born, and Herod died about a year after in 4 BC. That means Jesus was born in our timeline, in our calendar, most likely around 5 or 6 BC. That means our calendar is off by a few years. But don't worry, that doesn't mean we have to relive 2020 in a few years, okay? Herod the Great was an Edomian. That means he was an Edomite. That means he wasn't a Jew. He married a Jew, and he did his best to win over the Jews, but the Jews hated him. Why? Because the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Esau was the older twin brother of Jacob. He was not a son of the promise. Remember, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated or rejected. We know that God renames Jacob Israel, and from from him come the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Edomites were greatly despised by the Jews. Herod's father was installed into power um, by the Romans because he did Julius Caesar a favor. And so Caesar rewarded Herod the Great's father, uh, his name was Antipater, with an army and with the title. You are now Herod the king of the Jews. So Herod the Great, his son, adopted that title when he began to rule. Herod the Great was known for two things. First, you could say his great building projects, and second, his great paranoid cruelty. So his building projects were, were vast. He had, he had built palaces, fortresses, cities, aqueducts. He was especially known for remodeling the temple. He may have done that at the request of his Jewish wife. But he's also known for his great paranoid cruelty. He believed at any given time, someone was out to usurp him, to kill him, to steal away his title, King of the Jews. In fact, he killed anyone he believed was a threat, including his own family. On one night, Herod killed his wife, and later that evening, he killed his two sons. The next day, he woke up and felt remorse, so he built a tower and dedicated the tower to their memory. At the end of his life, which is just after this, about a year or so later, he was paranoid that no one would mourn his passing. So he issued an order that on my death, 100 men in the city, including many Pharisees, be arrested and be executed on the day of his death so that his day would be remembered as a great day of loss and mourning. Thankfully, the order was not carried out when he died. One person said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. By the way, you know who said that? Caesar Augustus, the one who had awarded his father the title, the king of the Jews. So now we've got this paranoid despot who's known as the king of the Jews, who's known as Herod the not-so-great, and he's hearing that foreigners are now entering the city looking to worship the king of the Jews who's just been born. What do you think that's going to do to someone? Of course, the text is right. He's greatly troubled. He wants to put him to death. Notice verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where 
the Christ was to be born. Herod gathers all those who are well-versed in Scripture, the scribes who would have memorized the Old Testament, and he wants to know where is the Messiah predicted to be born. Why? So that I can worship alongside all of you. No, of course not. So that I can kill him. So notice verse 5, they say, well, Micah 5.2, as we studied last week, Micah 5.2 tells us that it's in Bethlehem of Judea. The experts in the Old Testament, they bring this Bible Q&A to the political ruler and they point to Micah 5.2 and that text says, as Matthew quotes it here, though Bethlehem is small and insignificant as a village, the Messiah is going to be born there in Bethlehem. And we know what happened. In God's providence, he stirred Caesar Augustus to issue a decree, to issue a census And that would lead Joseph and Mary, who lived in Nazareth, to go back to the town of David, the town of Bethlehem, where Jesus eventually is born. And so we see God's providential hand in stirring up Caesar to lead the census to take place. The king was born in Bethlehem. In fact, the scriptures give us, in Matthew 1 and 2, at least five prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. So notice these on the screen. First, the one we just mentioned, Micah 5, 2, is fulfilled here, that He's to be born in Bethlehem. We also learn that the son will be called out of Egypt. We learn that a little bit further down in verse 15. That's a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. Later on, we learn that there will be weeping in Ramah down in verse 18. That is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. We also learn at the very end of the chapter that he was a root from the stem of Jesse and therefore he's to be called a Nazarene. That fulfills Isaiah 11.1. And then the virgin will conceive a son, we learn in chapter 1 of Matthew, and he shall be called Emmanuel, or God, with us. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Now we see all of those, we leave that up for a minute, we see all of those fulfilled in Jesus in just chapters 1 and 2. But as we go throughout the Gospels, we realize Jesus Christ fulfills over th- around 300 different predictions in the Old Testament. And someone who may have a PhD actually one time asserted that Jesus just looked back through the Old Testament and said, you know what, I'm just going to personally try to fulfill all of the prophecies in the Old Testament myself. So I'm just going to go and do my part to fulfill the Messianic prophecies. And I would just point at the screen and say, well, hold on, how exactly If that's your case, how exactly did Jesus determine where he would be born? How exactly did Jesus, as an infant, determine to flee to Egypt with his parents and then come back to Nazareth? How did Jesus, as an infant, persuade Herod to kill the other babies so that there was weeping? You see, it's silly. There is mathematical, statistical impossibility even for these five to be fulfilled, let alone all 300. Unless God had been revealing the truth all along, which we know and believe he had. So the wise men announced the king of the Jews' arrival, and it's not Herod. It's this young baby born in Bethlehem. So let's look at these wise men, and let's learn about who they are and where they came from. Verse 7 says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So this is a secret off-the-books meeting, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
So he learns this was around a two-year window. That's why we go on to read that he had uh, all of the male children two years uh, old or under. It says in verse 16, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So we know it's within a two-year window that they had seen the star and, and had come. And so he's seeking their counsel, not so he can go pay homage to the new king, but so that he can have him killed. In his um, devotional book, Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, Herod and his counselors possessed what the wise men lacked, the scriptures that spoke about Christ. But they lacked what the wise men had, which was the desire to find him. You see, the wise men have no idea that he's desiring to kill the king. And so they agree to this ignorantly. Thankfully, later on, they're going to be warned in a dream not to return to Herod. But look at verse 9. It says that listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Then it tells us they see Mary and the child. They fall down and worship him. And then they open their treasures and offer him these gifts. Notice there are three gifts, but nowhere in the text does it say that there were only three men. Now, Wycliffe does translate wise men as kings, so I'm not going to try to be mad at Wycliffe, but we aren't told specifically whether or not they're actually kings. Verse 1 tells us, though, that they're wise men who come from the east, and they came because of a star. Now, most scholars believe that the wise men were actually a group of scientists or stargazers that may have come from Babylon. There happens to be some great evidence which actually backs up that claim. So wise men, if you want to define it, wise men literally is the word magi, which is short for magician. And those who practice not only scientific inquiry, but also those who studied astrology were lumped together in a group called magicians. And this name, unfortunately, stuck throughout Europe for many centuries. I believe it's quite possible that these men may have come from a line of people who were the Babylonian magi that had been trained by Daniel many centuries earlier. In Daniel 2.2, for example, we read this. We read, Then the king commanded, here's the word, the magi, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. We remember that. These astrologers known as Chaldeans were part of the king's circle of so-called wise men who practiced divination. Later in that same chapter, down in verse 48, we read this. After Daniel is able to interpret the dream, remember? It says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel was the one who oversaw them, who trained them, these wise men, these magi of Babylon. Craig Chester, the co-founder of the Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy, he says this. This is an unlikely source. He says the wise men may have been Zoroastrians, Medes, Persians, Arabs, or even Jews. Now, I disagree with him on that point. But he said this. He says they served as court advisors, making forecasts and predictions for their royal patrons, based on their study of the stars about which they were quite knowledgeable. He says, historically, magi often wandered from court to court, and it was not unusual for them to cover great distances 
in order to attend the birth or crowning of a king, paying their respects and offering gifts. It is not surprising, therefore, that Matthew would mention them as validation of Jesus' kingship or that Herod would regard their arrival as a very serious matter. Now, as we move away from history and more into legend, Jewish legend has it that they were the representatives of the three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So all of the nations are represented in these three. Therefore, one of them is almost always pictured as an Ethiopian, often in the case of the nativity scenes. You have stories like Ben-Hur, where their names are Caspar, Belthazar, and Melchior. There's actually uh, an um, exhibition in the Cathedral of Cologne where three skulls were said to have been discovered in the 12th century. Now, we have to move away from legend, uh, and we have to move back into the text. The text says, they followed the star which arose in the east. So my argument is that these may have been Babylonians, but they're certainly Gentiles who are coming to worship the king of the Jews. I think it's interesting that Matthew, who's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, includes this part of the story. And Luke, who's writing primarily to Gentiles, which we'll study this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, he includes the Jewish shepherds in his narrative. I think it's a subtle book into the book of Matthew that here at the beginning, men from nations at the ends of the earth follow creation to come and worship Jesus. And then at the end of Matthew, as we'll have in our benediction today, later, Jesus' disciples follow his commission to go to the ends of the earth. Why? So that the nations may worship Jesus and be a part of his new creation. So I think this is a, a great way to book in the Gospel of Matthew. My argument is that these men were less astrologers and more likely astronomers. And there's a big difference between the two. Just taking note here in definitions, astronomy is the scientific study of the universe and movements and positions of heavenly bodies. Whereas astrology is the false religious belief that those movements and positions can influence human behavior and destiny. Now, the sad thing is that up until about the 17th century, both of those were, were linked together as one but they're quite different. If you and I were to go to your backyard and pull out the telescope that you got at a yard sale, we look in the telescope and we look at Orion, one of my favorite constellations. When I look at Orion, I'm intrigued by Rigel, which is there in the belt, and I find myself looking at what stars or planets compose the constellation, and I lift my head up from the lens of the telescope and I look up and I say, the heavens, you know the verse, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. Day after day, night after night, the stars proclaim his handiwork. They declare his speech. They're speaking. And what are they saying? They're saying, God is massive. God is glorious. God is great. This creation is so vast and yet he's above all of it. He's separate and distinct from it. it. It causes me to realize how small I am when I realize how vast the universe really is and how maybe the universe wasn't created to be inhabited. Maybe it was created to showcase the glory and the grandeur of the holiness of a great and mighty God. And so I, I look up at Orion and I'm appreciating the glory of God. That's astronomy. Astrology is when I open up the pages of a newspaper as a Scorpio, and I want to find out what Orion has to say to me 
in my day to day. Oh, you're going to, it's always general, isn't it? Oh, you're going to have a great thing happen to you today. A good friend is going to be even a better friend. Just something silly like that. Now, if the lottery tickets are, uh, are produced, they're the lottery ticket numbers, then that's a different story. Now, you see, the, the actual word for astrology in the Hebrew language means divining the heavens. Divination is the foretelling of future events or revealing secret knowledge by the means of signs, omens, or supernatural agency. And so, therefore, astrology is the practice of pagan divination, and that is expressly forbidden in God's law. Leviticus 19.26 in the NIV makes it very, very clear. Do not practice divination or sorcery. Now, I just want to say, if you are opening the newspaper or opening some website and you are reading horoscopes, then you are doing what this is forbidden. You are practicing divination. And I want to go even a step further. If you are diving into the Enneagram, this is a form of pagan divination. And I want to counsel you against that, warn you not to go down that route. Please pay careful attention to this point. These men are not there to worship the star. They're studying creation deeply in order that they may worship Christ more fully. And I believe this displays the beauty of scholarship and the beauty of science. By the way, scholarship and science are not the polar opposites of faith. On the contrary, the more we grow in our intellect, the more we grow in scientific inquiry, the more we're led to see the complexity and power of a creator. This is what happened in, in a few centuries ago with the scientific explosion these were men and women of God who wanted to study creation to highlight the creator. In the same way, if you handed me your iPhone this morning, I would see how amazing the technology is and how advanced it is. Far greater than anything that Android makes, right? And I may be compelled to think, wow, it's stunning how all the parts of this phone just fell together over time through natural processes in billions and billions of years. No, the, the technology showcases the designer. And we're compelled to say, what an amazing design. In the same way, intelligence does not come from non-intelligence. It all speaks to an intelligent designer. The heavens declare the glory of God. These magi, I believe, were Gentiles who had been studying the heavens and they wanted to give God more glory. Now, how is it possible that they followed a star that stops over Bethlehem. Is this science or is this science fiction? How is that possible? I want to talk through this third idea, the star. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, his star, when it rose, and we've come to worship him. What on earth do they mean, his star? Well, again, Daniel would have taken with him the scriptures as he goes in exile for a time into Babylon, as he begins to train and teach these magicians, these magi. Several centuries later, we see now these magi coming in to Jerusalem and saying, we've seen his star. What were they referring to? I believe they're referring to a prophecy a very obscure prophecy found in Numbers 24. Tucked right in the book of Numbers is a random prophecy by a guy named Balaam. 
Now, we're going to study Balaam a little bit more on Wednesday night as we study the church of Pergamum in Revelation 2. But if you remember your story, Balaam, you remember the donkey story? Balaam was hired by Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he was hired to curse the Israelites. Balaam was a prophet for hire, a seersayer. And it seemed like every time Balaam would, would prophesy something, it would actually come true. And so Balak, the king of Moab, says, hey, I'd like to hire you, actually. Can I subcontract you to come and curse with prophecy? Can you curse Israel, my enemy? And so Balaam says, sure, I'll do that. And he stands over Israel. Three times he opens his mouth, and instead he says, blessing, 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 instead of the cursing. And, and you know, Balak is maybe looking over going, you're the worst subcontractor I've ever hired. You're doing the exact opposite of what I'm paying you to do. You're supposed to curse them. And we're not sure exactly what happens. Uh, some believe that the counsel of Balaam that's mentioned in Scripture was Balaam saying, listen, I can't curse them. I can only say what's true. But you're the king of who? The Moabites? You have some beautiful women. If you allow those women to go entice the men, then they'll commit sexual immorality and then they'll be cursed by proxy. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Israel takes the bait, God curses them. But before that happens, Balaam's fourth prophecy was very cryptic and incredible. Look at these words on the screen from Numbers 24. This is Balaam. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter is what a king held. It's a, it's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of might, power, and it's a symbol of ultimately condemnation. One who holds the scepter can condemn and kill. He says, this star and this scepter shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of, of Seth or Sheth. Now, verse 18 goes on to say that Edom has been dispossessed. Who's the king of the Jews at this time? Herod, who's an Edomite. Edom will be dispossessed. He says, I see him. This ruler is coming, and a star is going to come out of Jacob that represents him. And many people believe that these wise men had been studying the constellations and the stars and the planets, and they were anticipating from Babylon a special moment when a star accompanies the birth of the king of the Jews, the coming ruler. So was this star a myth, a miracle, or something more? There's a few options here. Some people believe the star was just a little light orb, a small light orb that was localized. It was just a little light that uh, just appeared and the wise men followed behind it. It was just moving very slowly, supernaturally led them from Babylon to Judea. I would say they'd have to be having very fast camels to be following a light orb that didn't draw a lot of attention. Plus, we don't see that phenomena in, uh, in anywhere in creation. So I, d I don't think it's a, a localized little orb. Other people think maybe it's a comet, like Halley's Comet. Uh, maybe it moved through the night sky and led them toward Bethlehem. Well, we know Halley's Comet did make a pass, but it was way earlier. It was in 11 BC, and that does not fit the historical timeline. I think that if you observe comets, they don't last for years and years, and it, it took them several years. Others believe, and this is fascinating, that it may have been a supernova. According to Johann Kepler, there was a two-month stellar phenomena of a supernova around 5 BC. So it may have been that. And this is really cringy to even say. Other people have wrote in their devotionals 
that the star was simply the fervency inside the wise men's hearts. Aw, that's false. Okay, that's not true. How can a star move and then stop? See, here's the theory that intrigues me. As we look at science, the wise men saw, it says they saw the star, quote, in the east. Now, the way that those words in the east can also be translated in the Greek, it can also be translated at its rising. So this can be interpreted as a heliacal rising, where a constellation or planet appears in the sky just before sunrise. In fact, the rising of the, of the star Sirius on the horizon was a very important part of the Egyptian calendar. And in the Greek calendar, the rising of the Pleiades before uh, their Greek uh, sailing season marked the beginning of that. So are the wise men saying, we see a star on the horizon just before sunrise, like Venus, the morning star? Well, it's fascinating to learn that in 5 or 6 BC, there's historical evidence that a very strange phenomenon happened that doesn't happen often. And that's where three planets were lined up at the same time over where you would see from the Middle East, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. This is maybe an unlikely reference, but space.com actually says this. It says, in fact, for eight consecutive months, the time it might have taken to travel the 500 miles or more from Babylonia to Judea, Jupiter and Saturn remained within three degrees of each other from late April of 7 BC until early January of 6 BC. This happened within the constellation of Leo. Leo is known as a lion. There's nothing in scripture that speaks about a lion at all, nothing significant. Later on, we see Venus, the morning star, aligning with Jupiter, and that's next to Regulus, which is known as the king of stars. Not only is Jupiter close to Regulus, but our sun was in the constellation of Virgo, known as the Virgin. And all of this was happening right around the time the Magi arrived in Jerusalem. Again, I was fascinated that space.com actually said this. They said, as the planet slowly descended toward the horizon, they got closer and closer together. They converged. Finally, at 8.30 p.m. local time, they drew to within a mere 0.6 of an arc minute of each other while appearing in the western twilight sky. To the Magi, the two brightest planets must have appeared to coalesce into one and glowed before them like a dazzling beacon over Judea. Eyeglasses were many centuries in the future, so only people with perfect eyes would have seen the planets separated. Okay, but the question is, how did the star stop? Well, again, Craig Chester points this out. He says, quote, the word stop may be what we call a planet's stationary point. Remember, the word planet means uh, wanderer. And it's weird, when you look up in the night sky, the stars have a very predictable track, but then the planets, they'll move forward and then they'll suddenly move backwards. Why is that? That's because they're also revolving around the sun like we are. And what happens is, just like when you get on the interstate and you pass someone who's driving, it looks like their tires are moving backwards. That's called retrograde loop. And so he goes on to say that as the stars, as the planet alongside the stars will move, it'll regularly exhibit a retrograde loop. As it approaches the opposite point in the sky from the sun, it appears to slow, come to a full stop, and then move backward through the sky for some weeks. He says, it seems plausible the Magi were overjoyed at again seeing before them as they traveled southward, the star Jupiter at its stationary point standing still over Bethlehem from their vantage point. 
And he says, we do know it is certain that Jupiter did perform such a retrograde loop in the year 2 BC. Wow. The heavens declare the glory of God. So from the wise men's vantage point, the star seemed to pause or stop from Jerusalem in the direction of Bethlehem. And this would have tipped them off, not only from Micah 5.2, but also where the star was, where the king was born. You see, don't get caught too much up in the theories. It's fun to think about, but what's important is not the nature of the star. What's important is the significance of it. God causes some sort of stellar event to lead these men from their home to come and worship the newborn king. And that's what's important. These men come bearing gifts. And that's our fourth and final focus that I want to look at. Look at verse 11. It says, They went into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down. And notice who they worshipped. They did not worship Mary. They worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures, and they did offer three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, it says here that they offered him gifts, verse 11. Whenever that phrase is used in the scripture, 100% of the time it means a religious offering to God. This is not a Christmas present. This is a worshipful offering. And notice that these three gifts are very symbolic. First, gold. Gold is a symbol of deity. It's a symbol of glory. It's, of course, a gift fit for a king. Then there's frankincense. This is a type of perfume or ointment, and this was usually offered on an altar of worship to a deity. So this is a gift fit for a priest. We have a gift of kingliness and a gift of priestliness, but then we have myrrh. And you almost hear the record scratch here as the, the one magi, the one wise man lays down myrrh. You almost see everyone else looking at him going, really? Why are you bringing myrrh as a gift? That seems a little bit inappropriate for a, uh, a, a child. This is something that you would bring to someone's burial to anoint a dead body. This does not seem like a good baby shower gift. And yet, it's symbolic because myrrh is a picture, an appropriate picture of Jesus' coming death. You see, the gifts that are presented to Jesus speak to his kingly nature, his deity. They speak to his priesthood as the one mediator who stands between God and man the man, Jesus Christ, and they speak of his imminent coming death and burial. These men come to worship Jesus. They bring something of worth to offer to him. They come from afar, and they come to lay something down for the king. And rather than returning to Herod, thankfully, they're warned in a dream to go a different route. But that's not the only warning in a dream. We look at verse 13. And it says, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And the angel said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. And that's exactly what ends up happening. He goes and he has those who are male children in Bethlehem in that whole region, two years old or under, put to death. A tragic infanticide. And yet, we see God calling his son out of Egypt there in verse 15. This is a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. And in a sense, it may have been a little bit fulfilled when Israel was called out of bondage, bondage called out of Egypt uh, into the land of promise. But it is actually fulfilled here in Matthew's gospel. 
as the son was called out of Egypt. So just think of the exceeding joy these magi had in the birth of this child. They're not coming just to offer gifts at a baby shower. This is not just a child. This is not just a king. This is no ordinary birth. We learn in Matthew chapter 1 that this was to be a virgin birth, that he would be born, be called Emmanuel, not literally, but his title would be God with us. We know in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling place, his home to abide with us. That truth, God with us, changes everything. And it changed everything for the wise men. Clark says this, Jesus is called Emmanuel, or God with us, in his incarnation. God with us by the influences of his Holy Spirit, in the Holy Sacrament, in the preaching of his word, in private prayer. And God with us through every action of our life that we begin, continue, and end in his name. He is God with us to comfort, enlighten, protect, and defend us. In every time of temptation and trial, in the hour of death, in the day of judgment, and God with us and in us, and we with him and in him to all eternity. This changes everything. God now desires to be with us. The one in whom we would be facing certain death and condemnation as we stand before a holy God, condemned in Adam, And yet he desires to be with us, not in judgment, but in grace. John Wesley's dying words were this, the best of all is God with us. What a glorious truth to know the king of creation desires not just to judge, but in grace and truth to be with his people, to never leave us, to never forsake us. You know, the number one command in scripture is fear not. It's fear not, and it's always linked almost always to the number one promise, which is, I am with you. God with us. I am with you. This time of year, this Christmas season, is a time where we come together to appreciate that God, our King, has come to dwell with man, to tabernacle with us. And everything has changed. Well, as we close this morning, it can sometimes be tricky to think about how to give a gift. Maybe you come into the holidays this time of year, and you go, you know, so-and-so, first of all, who are we going to buy gifts for? How big is that list? And then what do we buy? I don't know if you have someone on your list that is hard to buy for. My family told me recently, you're really hard to buy for. Dad, we don't know what to buy you. And I was like, I'm not hard to, just buy me a book, and I'm happy. Or donuts. I mean, it's pretty pretty straightforward. (laughs) We think about Jesus the King. What gift could possibly be fit to offer a king? If you and I were in the presence of a king of a nation here on the earth and we were supposed to bring them something, what would even be worthy of that king? And yet we have the king of kings. And so we may not have the financial means to bring King Jesus gold, but we can certainly bring him something of far greater value than any earthly treasure. It may not be symbolic or costly like frankincense, but our lives can be laid at his feet as a fragrant offering. And we may not have access to myrrh, but the truth is when we come to the cross, it bids us to come and die. And we can be joined with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection as we surrender our lives in obedience and allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. 
In the book I referenced earlier, Sinclair Ferguson, in The Dawn of Redeeming Grace, he writes about the wise men in Matthew 2. And here's what he says. He asks this question. I want us to ponder this for a minute. He says, the message seems obvious, doesn't it? When we see Christ and when we recognize him as king, we too will fall down and worship him and offer to him the richest treasures of our life. We lay at his feet the brightest and the best of the things we hold dear. But then he says this, have you ever done that? What would it look like to do that today? When you and I present our lives to King Jesus, it means we're pledging our fealty, not merely to a nation or her flag, but to the one who rules the world with grace and truth and the one who makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So may we, as we go into this glorious week and we celebrate the incarnation and we gather with friends and family and maybe some of us grieve the memories of those we've lost, maybe we're alone and facing some holidays apart or estranged from some friends or family, may we not forget that the greatest gift was not something laid under a tree, but the one that was nailed to a tree, the, the son who was given for us. May we remember that. May we celebrate that. And may we, like the wise men, bow our hearts and our knees to give him the true worship he deserves. Emmanuel, God our King, has come. And that truth changes everything. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to close in song and declare the gospel as we sing these words. Go tell it on the mountain. But let's pray together before we conclude. Father in heaven, we thank you that the greatest gift that we could ever receive was not just intelligence or information. It was not money, riches, fame, or glory on this earth, but the glory to God in the highest came in the lowest as the Son emptied himself and became one of us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came in the nature of a servant, came into a lowly manger, which became his glorious throne. This morning, we're grateful, Lord, to tell it on the mountain this week, to declare the good news that Christ the Savior has come. As we sang earlier, Lord, may we prepare him room. May we invite the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, the loving initiative of the Father, once again in a new and fresh way into our lives as we look back and as we look ahead at the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask, Lord, that as all of the preparations and the food and the festivities and the meetings, as all these things culminate in the next few weeks, Lord, what is most important is that God with us, our King Emmanuel, has come. Lord, we celebrate that and we thank you not only today, but every day as we consider your first advent and as we look ahead to your second. Lord, may we tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ has come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.